Before we do, we want to go to the Lord in a word of prayer. And many have been asking after we finished our series in first, second, and third John what the next series was going to be. And uh, I have decided I'm going to be preaching in the book of First Samuel. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, it's been a while since we've been there. And we'll be looking at that in a couple of weeks. We're not going to start that today. Uh, but we'll be looking at First Samuel. We have three personalities there that are uh, central to that book. And the one, of course, is Samuel and then Saul and then David. We see a transition from the time of the judges to the time of the monarchy. Saul being the first king followed by David. So we'll begin that in a few weeks. Next week we have um, the students from Purdue with us. So we're going to focus our message there upon the gospel. I hope you will pray for this weekend as we probably have about 14 or 15 that will be coming to be with us. They're students, international students on Purdue University and uh, Salt and Light Ministry, as they have done for many years, bring them down here. They go to the Creation Museum, spend time with us. They'll be worshiping with us next Sunday. Um, So be in prayer for that, that we can display the love of Christ in our assembly and our worship and that Christ will be lifted up and that God might be pleased to to work in their hearts. Tonight, I'm going to begin a new series, and this is from the book of Galatians, the Magna Carta of Christian Freedom. I would encourage you to come back and join with us as we begin this study, a very important book. It reminds us that salvation is by the work of Christ alone. We're justified by faith in Christ alone and his work alone. And we bring nothing to the table as far as our salvation except the sin that makes this salvation necessary. And uh, so, again, I would encourage you to join with us tonight as we look at the book of Galatians. But this morning, I would like to focus our attention. We've come through the last month of considering this great historic redemptive events and one of them being the birth of the Son of God who came into our world, born of the Virgin Mary. This is a significant redemptive event in redemptive history, the coming of the Son of God. And I hope as we have been speaking and thinking about that these last several weeks, we've considered the hope that it brings to the believer Hope in our wilderness. We we live east of Eden. And a Savior has come into our wilderness to redeem and to save. We have also hope for our brokenness. Not only is the world broken around us, but we are broken. And it is Christ who comes to heal broken people. He is our hope. And then we consider the names of this one who is our hope. And we looked at various names that are given to to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope. And then last week we concluded that by speaking about the worldview that we have. God has given us as Christians a means of looking at the world and knowing and understanding our world, which so many do not understand. It gives us our past, our history, and why the world is as it is, and it looks to the future as well. And it gives us hope in our present life here, the gospel does. 
But it also gives us hope for the world that is yet to come. And it has been our privilege to look at and consider these things concerning the gospel, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought it would be good today for us just to ask ourselves, are these things impacting my life as they ought to? It's one thing to sing about all these things and to hear about them, but is it having the proper effect in my life when we think about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? God has done wonderful things for us. And I want to read some of these things. Second Corinthians four. In verse three, Paul says there that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glory of the, uh, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now notice verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, if you're in Christ, this is what God has done for you. He's opened your blind eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is a miracle of grace. God has done this for you to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 5, verse 14, verse I often quote, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him not no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. When we think about the gospel, when we think about these truths that we have been considering in these last weeks of the glory of Christ, the son of God who became a man, we considered the cross, uh, the cradle and the cross and the crown of this Jesus. These things, by God's grace, are meant to change us. Paul says that as we look at Christ, as we focus upon him, that we ought to be transformed from one level of glory to another. And so my desire today, before we come to the Lord's table, is to speak about God's work in us to bring about a desire and an affection for God, that it might be increased in us. It's not just to know these things in our head, but it's to know them in our heart, to be moved by them. And a sermon that I read long ago 
that was written by a man, Thomas Chalmers, in 17, he lived from 1780 to 1847, and he was referred to as one of the most prolific, as the most prolific pastor teacher that Scotland had ever known, and that's saying a lot in those days. They had some wonderful preachers. And he gave a sermon, he was preaching on 1 John 2.16, that you're not to love the world. John writes and says, do not love the world for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's not of God. So don't love this world that you live in around you, the culture of the world around you. And the title of his sermon was this. He said, uh, and, and his main point was the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. How do we not love the world in which we live? How do we not love sinful things? How do we not love our own selfish, sinful desires and flesh? Well, he says there is the need for a new affection. And when that new affection takes place in our life, it expul- it, 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 there's an expulsive power in it to not love these other things. As we think about this, we are reminded of the power and the corruption of our affections. When God created Adam and Eve, he made them in his own image. They were rational beings. They had an intellect to think, to reason. They had a will. They also had desires. God created Adam and Eve with desires and with affections. There's a desire to have food, and God gave them a bounty of food to eat. And there was a desire for these good things that God had given to him, to them. They lived in a relationship with one another. They had desires to fellowship and to relate to one another. And there was the intimacy of the marriage relationship. There are affections there, but there were also affections for their God. A desire for him. He walked with them in the garden and they enjoyed fellowship with their God. And so God made us with affections and with desires. And those desires and those affections exercise power over us because we deserve, we pursue what we desire. What our heart goes after is what we go after. And so God made us with desires, but something happened as a result of the fall, didn't it? The heart of man was turned away from God and turned upon himself and turned inward, bent in upon his own soul. And it affected his thinking, his will, and it affects our emotions, our desires, our affections, what we love. And so Paul, writing to the Romans, speaks about this great exchange, that we exchange the truth of God for the lie. And we worshiped and we served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. What a statement. The greatest and best of all beings that we turned away from him as we fell in Adam and we continue to do that left to ourselves And we worship and serve the creature. 
Our desires have now been turned inward upon ourselves and our own desires. Paul writes about this again in Ephesians 2 and verse 3. We all once walked according to the lust of our flesh and of our mind, and we were children of wrath. Ephesians 4.22, speaking about the Gentiles, that they walk according to their deceitful lust. 2 Timothy 3.4, Paul says there that men became lovers of pleasure, lovers of pleasure, Rather than lovers of God. And as I already quoted from 1 John 2, what is what is the love of this world? What does it entail? It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And this is not of the father. Our desires have become corrupted. And Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 6, it describes it this way. We're all like sheep going what? Our own way. Going our own way. We have desires still. Yes, we do. We have affections, but they have been corrupted by sin. We talk about total depravity. And total depravity is not that we're as bad as we could possibly be. Thank God for that. Just by his common grace. But total depravity means that Sin has affected the whole of man's being. All of our faculties have been affected by sin. And therefore, we love things that we shouldn't love. And we do not love the very God who created us, who made us. We desire and we want things that are inappropriate and dishonoring to God. So... This is a result of the fall. But what happens in God's saving grace is, secondly, the work of saving grace is producing a new affection. When God saves us, he is bringing about changes, fundamental changes in our very being, in all of these faculties, including our affections. So there's a renewing of our minds there's a, a new renewing of our will to now do what God calls us to do. But all of this flows out of a change in affections and what we desire. Because, again, what we desire is what we're going to pursue. What we love is what we're going to give ourselves to for the better or for the worse. Because they have powerful influence. Our, our affections are powerful things. And so grace is restoring what has been lost. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it speaks about a new covenant that God is going to make, a new and a better covenant that Jesus Christ himself brings in by his shed blood. And we remember that today. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. But in this new covenant, God says, I am going to do something. I'm going to take out stony hearts that are dead to God, and I'm going to give a heart of flesh. A heart that is alive unto God. And there are going to be these new affections that will come as a result of this. And in this new covenant in in Jeremiah, it says, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me. They will all know me. All that have been born of God and have become a part of this new covenant. They will all know me. Now, that word know is not just an intellectual knowledge. 
We know that as we look at Scripture. It speaks about an intimacy, a personal kind of knowledge to know, to know is used by Jesus. What what is eternal life in John 17? Jesus says eternal life is this, that they may know you, the only true and living God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that there may be this personal knowledge of the living God and to know him in this way. Adam and Eve had walked in the garden with God. They knew fellowship. They knew this intimacy. Well, this is something that is being restored by the grace of God. There are renewed affections that God brings about in the hearts of his people. And so, as we read in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God has opened our eyes for a Christian to see the glory and the beauty of Christ. Something we did not prize. Something that we did not love. Left to ourselves, we were blind and we lived in darkness. But now we have seen the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. There is a new creation that has come about. And this is a supernatural work of God, isn't it? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. There's a new life, a new creation by the grace of God. And there are now these new affections that come as a result of this work of grace in the hearts of sinners. Thomas Chalmers says that this new affection that God has given to us and is working into us is an affection that is enabling us to turn aside from these former loves that held our hearts. And they're powerful things, aren't they? The love of the world, the world that seeks to conform us to its likeness. Those are powerful things. But here is a new affection, a stronger, greater affection, whereby we turn away from these former uh, things that dominated our hearts. So thirdly, this morning, the expulsive power of this new affection. This is a means of grace to us as Christians. God is working not just to help us to understand stand things intellectually. We thank God for that. But that those truths then reach our heart, our affections, and what we will love and what we will serve. Because we always will have desires. We always will have affections. But the gospel affects our hearts in a new way now. That we might love what we formerly did not love. And to love God. In 1 John, we are told this. I think it's 4.19. That we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. But that's what the new birth brings about. That we do love God. That is the mark of a believer. In fact, Paul said, if any man does not love Christ, let him be accursed. But God in his grace has opened our eyes and he's worked in our hearts and given us a new heart. And now there is a new affection that we might know God, that we might love God. And this is the greatest and the first commandment, isn't it? You shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, with all your being. You see there the effects of of desire, of affection. It affects the whole of one's life. What you love, you will give yourself to. And we are to love God with all of our being. Thomas Chalmers said this. He said, nobody can dispossess the heart of an old affection, but by the expulsive power of a new one. We cannot choose what we love, but always love what seems desirable to us. Thus, we will only change what we love when something proves itself to be more desirable to us than what we already love. I will then always love sin and the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. That Christ is better. Here is the power, this expulsive power of a new affection. I was thinking of an example of this, and I thought of Christmas with our little grandson. And uh, as he opened, well, we helped open presents with him. Do you know what he was enamored with? What he was drawn to? It wasn't the present. It was the box. It was the wrapping. And as he, at this stage in his life, does, his desire is to put everything that he gets in his mouth. So he grabs the paper, he grabs the box, and he's sticking it in his mouth. Now, I'm not worried that this is going to be a desire that is going to follow him throughout his life. Because I know this, probably next Christmas, it's not going to be the box. It's not going to be the paper. There is a new desire for these presents that he will get. There's going to be a desire for working in the mud or in the sandbox, playing with tractors. And then it's going to be wanting a bicycle and And he's not going to want to play with those things anymore. And then it's going to be a car and wanting to drive. We see how these desires uh, trump other former desires. And so it is in the gospel. God, by his grace, is working in us to love things that left to ourselves we would not love. And so it is a means of grace to us by our God that he is working in us. Not just to think about the gospel, but to be affected by that gospel. And as we think upon the truths of the incarnation, as we come to the Lord's table today, these things are meant to effect a change in us, to remind us and renew in us a love for Christ, for all the things that he has done for us. And so a means of grace to us is is that God has given us the scriptures. He's given us the preaching of the word. He's given us the Lord's Supper. He's given us these things so that we might see him in his glory, that we might treasure him, and that we might therefore desire and love him and give our life to serve him. Verses that we know. Romans 12, 1 and 2. What does Paul say there? Having concluded 11 chapters speaking about the amazing grace of God and what he has done to justify ungodly sinners and make them acceptable before a holy God through the work of Christ. 
He comes now to chapter 12 and he says, I beseech you, therefore, by what? By the mercies of God. Think about what God has done for you. I've just laid this out. Think about the mercies of God, what he has done for you. Meditate upon that. And as you meditate upon that and as you think about that, what God has done for you, there is this affection that is growing within us. And therefore, he says, he goes on to say, to be renewed in our thinking, to not be conformed to this world. And all of that flows out of the mercies of God. He has been so kind and gracious to me in the gospel. How can I not love him? How can I not serve him? And so these are means to help us to grow in grace. Titus 2, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And what is this grace of God doing for us? When we think about the grace of God, it is teaching us to just say no to ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously and godly in this present age and looking for the appearance, the blessed appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these truths are meant to effect a change in us. Now, we know that we do not love God perfectly. We sang in that song just a minute ago. When I fear that my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through this fearful path. For my love is often cold. But he will hold me fast. This is the work of Christ in us to renew this love in us, to work this love into our hearts. And thanks be to God, that's what he is doing in the lives of his people. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, it is our great privilege to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. And I pray that it renews And enlivens us a love for Christ, for all that he has done for us. He was crucified as the Lamb of God for us. I invite you to take the insert in your bulletin. So we prepare to come to the Lord's table. We're going to sing, Behold the Lamb of God. I ask on the last verse that those who are serving the Lord's Supper, if they will come forward and Let us prepare our hearts as we think about the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Remember John the Baptist or John the Apostle said, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's stand together as we sing.